when you can't run away from your most troubling thoughts. Part six. Doubts caused by emotions out of control. I don't mean some kind of an emotional outbreak or outburst. I'll explain to that as we work through this morning, and I'll come to the text in just a minute. I have two that I want to look at this morning. Some of you would remember a couple in this church. They don't attend here. They moved away, and, and uh, I only refer to them because we've known them for a long time. Many of you know them, and uh, we used to visit quite a bit, and I know they wouldn't mind sharing. They used to travel pretty regularly down to Florida, and Rini and I uh, used to visit with them a fair bit in their home, and almost every time, uh, Ken and I would get into the same argument about how foolish it was to drive all the way down and all the way back every time because there is such a thing as air travel. But Ken didn't like to fly. He was openly, by his own admission, scared to death about flying. You couldn't get him into a plane if it was the last way to travel on earth. And he would point his stubby finger at me And he would tell me that over and over again. Not if it was the last way to travel on earth. And then I would get impatient. I would try to change his mind. I don't know why I did that. I just did. I would sit down with him and I would argue all the right statistics. I would tell him more people die in car accidents... More people drown in bathtubs than in plane crashes. I would tell them the chances of dying in an airplane are calculated, and this apparently is the truth, calculated to be roughly the same as dying from a lightning strike. I would go over all those arguments with him. He would argue back, and I would... Here's how I would make my point. I would argue louder. And we would do that until both of our wives fell asleep on the couch, and nothing I said made any difference. It took me a long time to realize why I couldn't change his mind. Ken had serious doubts. That's what this series is all about. He had serious doubts about flying... But the doubts had nothing whatsoever to do with my statistics. That I was so brilliantly offering to him. His doubts didn't come from sound reason. If they had come from sound reason, then all of my arguments would have solved the day. Ken's doubts didn't come from reason. Ken's doubts came from a much more powerful place than just his head. Ken's doubts came from his emotions. Fear was producing his doubts. And all the statistics in the world don't cancel out the power of an irrational but intense fear. Arguments are for the head. And they don't always carry the same clout with the emotions. Now, whether or not you like airplanes, 
isn't really of crucial importance. It's just a matter of personal convenience than eternal significance. But these kinds of doubts, these same doubts, doubts caused by emotions that override thought. That's what I'm talking about. Doubts that come from emotions that override thought. They also come in our Christian walk. And they come to rob the soul of confidence in God. They can, they can suck the life out of an otherwise sound biblical faith. Point number one. I've changed the wording of this slightly for people who really keep precise notes. The power of unruly emotions over the logic of faith. The power of unruly emotions over the logic of faith. There are people who lose faith in God without ever being reasoned out of their beliefs. One of the series I'm going to do in the fall... Sunday nights will be Atheists Are Made, Not Born, The Psychology of Modern Atheism. We're going to struggle, study that. But there are people who lose faith in God without ever being reasoned out of their beliefs. Frequently, their, their emotions simply take their reason hostage. And with the mind held at bay, faith just gets hijacked. So in other words, it is dangerously silly to assume that once faith is embraced with the mind, and you've read the books and you know the apologetics, it's dangerous to assume that the mind will continue to embrace the faith automatically until some stronger reason comes along to dislodge it. That's not true. It's not true. The human heart can be ruled by emotions as powerfully as the mind is ruled by reason and frequently the emotional factor outguns the power of logic and the power of understanding. There are examples of this in the scriptures. Here's a classic well-known one. 1 Kings 19, 1-8, if you have your Bibles in some form. 1 Kings 19, 1-8. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. This follows that great event. Remember that on Mount Carmel and you have uh, the prophets of Baal and Elijah and they both build altars and Elijah builds his altar with a sacrifice and buries it and drowns it with water over and over again and the false prophets go first and they're dancing around and they're cutting themselves and they're doing everything they can think of doing and nothing happens. And Elijah comes, drowns the sacrifice with water, simply calls from heaven. God pours fire down from heaven, consumes the water all of the sacrifice burns it all up, and then all of the false prophets are eliminated. It's a great showdown. Ahab goes to Jezebel, told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, so this messenger comes to Elijah, 
So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not take your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. You're dead by tomorrow, she says. Verse 3. Then he was afraid. I want to talk about that in a minute. He rose, ran for his life, came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and, and this is interesting, he left his servant there, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. So, these kinds of doubts get a higher hand on you when you're all alone. He's all by himself. There's nobody to encourage him. He leaves his servant, and he takes off all by himself. That's what people do. They get depressed, discouraged, angry, miffed, whatever. Don't go to church. Stay home. They'll say, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I've had people say that to me. You don't know what I'm going through. If I came to church now, I'd just be a hypocrite. And I'd say, we've got room for lots more hypocrites. Come. Just Come. He himself, when a day's journey into the wilderness, came, sat down under the broom tree, and he asked that he might die. Saying, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life. I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under the broom tree. I love this. Behold, an angel touched him. Like, wake up. You know, you do that to somebody? And said, arise, eat. Isn't that great? Not a sermon, not a lecture. You need a sandwich. Six. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water. Now, in our days, it'd be like there's, there's an oven sitting there in the middle of nowhere, and there's a cake in there. And he ate, and he drank, and he lay down again. More rest. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him said, arise, eat. The journey's too great for you. You're worn out. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days, 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. You have to leave it there. It's a great story. It's almost too incredible to believe when you put the pieces together. Elijah has just come through one of the most victorious, raw power displaying moments in his whole prophetic life. And he's had some great moments. He has just dueled it out with hundreds of false prophets, and he won. God cast fire down from heaven, demonstrating his power. In modern terms, Elijah's, you know, he's at the top of his prophetic game. And suddenly we see him all by himself and he's begging to die. Why? Well, an enemy has threatened him. Does that make sense to you? I mean, I know enemies can be real and they can be a problem, but, but this goes against all logic. A, a God who can send fire down from heaven feed Elijah with miracle cake from heaven, can easily take care of Elijah. I mean, he has solid proof yesterday of all that God was able to do. This fear almost defies all explanation whatsoever. And yet it's, it's beating Elijah. I want to die. Seriously? Nothing's happened to you yet. I just, I just want to die. 
But it's not really that strange. Elijah's worn out. He's depressed. He's hungry. He's all alone. He's vulnerable. He's overstretched and underrested, and it's clear from the passage that God thinks he's undernourished. That's why God feeds him twice before he instructs him even once. Feeds him twice, and he says, Sleep, we'll talk later. God is good. So here we see Elijah, all worn out and exhausted. And this, this kind of physical taxation is creeping up on him without his awareness of what it's doing to him. He has come to the point of actually doubting God's care, God's goodness, God's provision. All of the conquests of yesterday don't seem to be of any use right now. There's a lesson in there, isn't there? It's not that God has deserted Elijah. No one has come along to Elijah and disproved God's existence. But Elijah is ready to throw in the towel. The mighty prophet, I just want to die. I want to die. Despair isn't the only cause of these non-theological doubts. Loneliness can have the same effect. C.S. Lewis, I love reading some of the biographical and autobiographical stuff of C.S. Lewis, and he once wrote that the time he wrestled most vigorously with doubt was when he was traveling and staying all alone in a strange hotel room. Isn't that interesting? And thoughts would just sneak up on him. There are other causes. I'm trying to show now how this passage from Elijah gets close to us, not just an Old Testament prophet. There are other causes to these kinds of doubts. Sometimes, sometimes just a small, aggravating pinprick to our pride has a way of deflating genuine, authentic faith. Because we all have egos. Did you know that? Anger has dethroned more authentic faith in Christ than all the arguments atheists marshal. The opinion of a fellow worker that you find insulting. The remark in church against you that seemed loveless and harsh and judgmental. The program that you were decidedly against that got implemented the other person that got recognition for work that you did. These these are the kinds of things that fuel unruly emotions and suck the power out of the most intelligent Christian minds. You can be brilliant in your faith and have it derailed by these kinds of things. So I want to look at that. Point number two. Why our emotions have so much power? 
If you've been following this whole series, you'll know I've, I've made the distinction between what I call startup doubts and maintenance doubts. I can't review the whole series, but, but startup doubts are the result of an improper beginning in the Christian life. Not counting the cost, not thinking it through, not adopting a whole different set of values and worldviews. So many doubts raise their heads a little later on in the Christian life only because some things weren't properly cared for at conversion. We looked at those types of things in the first three teachings in this series. Maintenance doubts are doubts that arise farther on in the life of discipleship. And we looked at several kinds of those doubts in the last two studies. And and here's what I'd like to emphasize in this teaching. The main cause of a living, reasonable, solidly understood biblical faith coming off the rails at some later moment in the Christian life. The reason that happens is almost always the explosive power of some unguarded, uncontrolled emotional response to an external situation. It could be anything from a passionate sexual desire that isn't guarded. A heated confrontation with a fellow Christian. A deep-seated bitterness that's allowed to grow like a tumor. Envy of someone else's success. Or a million other possibilities. But the common factor in all of those things is you can be brilliant. You can know what you believe. You can know all the arguments. But the common factor is there's some unguarded passion pulverizing sound judgment and winning. Perhaps more than anything else, this is what the Bible means when it cautions against the lusts of the flesh. The way our brains are triggered... Our minds always go in just one direction. That passage, talking passages, talking about lusts of the flesh, rarely are speaking specifically of just sexual lusts. Lusts are desires that dominate sound judgment. That's what it's talking about. Desires that override what you know to be true in your mind. Desires that cancel out what you know to be correct, what you know to be true, what you know to be godly. When those desires become what the Bible calls inordinate in the old King James, when they start to govern, when they creep out of their proper domain in our hearts, then they're called lusts of the flesh because they devour everything else. These lusts don't attack the truth content of your faith. It has nothing to do with arguments against the existence of God or the resurrection of Jesus or the power of the atonement or the life to come. They have nothing to do with those things. They don't disprove God. They don't invalidate the content of his word. They don't have to. They simply put a knife to the throat of sound Bible knowledge and they take charge. They take the cockpit. They fly the plane. 
where do, where do these, these emotional desires, where do they get such devastating power? I have a couple of thoughts. A, these emotions are so powerful because of the fall. If it weren't for the effects of sin, our minds, our wills, our emotions would all function in a beautiful, divinely intended balance. But that is not true of any of us in this room right now. Not yet. It's not that our emotions are more fallen than any other part of our beings. That's not quite it. And it's not that our emotions are, of themselves, more wicked or more sinful than any other part of our beings. That's not quite it either. It's just that our emotions are more susceptible to variation and influence than any other part of our nature. Our emotions are more easily enticed. And this makes them a particularly favorite target of the devil. We're looking tonight in our spiritual warfare series, the external work of the devil in our lives. We looked at internal last Sunday night. Our emotions are a particularly favorite target of the devil. He knows, he knows, it is much easier to change the way I feel than the way I think. Much easier. He knows that people who would never dream of denying their Lord, there's just too much evidence of who Jesus is and why he came and what he did and his resurrected life and power. Satan knows that's very hard to cancel out in my life, but he knows that it's much easier to change the way we feel than think. People who would never dream of denying their Lord will quickly nurse anger. There, that's way easier. Way easier. People who would never deny the Apostles' Creed can be corrupted by pride. People who know all the books of the Bible and can sing them and say them backward and forward, inside out, can easily be led into materialism and idolatry. This is easy pickings for the devil. This is a lot more work, reason. Do you understand what I'm saying, church? And so he aims his efforts at our emotions because our emotions are the part of us that would be most vulnerable to outside influence because of the fall. I said, why do these emotions have so much power? First, because of the fall. And secondly, B, our emotions are so powerful because they're, well, they're more vivid than our reasoned thoughts and arguments. You, you, you reason in black and white. Your emotions are in color. With big screen and big sound. You have to think through the reasons for faith. Your emotions, they simply wash over you. They just sweep like a tidal wave over the side of a ship. Your emotions hit you like a Hollywood movie. Your reasons are more like reading a dictionary. 
The only power your emotions have over you is the reality they create. There is no more actual substance in these emotions than the bomb on the movie screen. It's not a real explosion. The power of these unruly emotions, these desires on the inside, it's, it's the subliminal picture they create in your imagination. But the feeling, the feeling they generate creates its own reality. Here's what I mean. Let me get specific. The temptation never feels like it's resistible. You get it? The anger always feels justified, even when it isn't. That's, that's the feeling of it. The despair isn't totally black, but it feels totally black. Oh, God, just take my life, Elijah. That's what the emotions do. Such is the power of emotions gone wild... They have the power to sweep the most reasoned mind into wild extremes so quickly. What was nothing yesterday is earth-shaking today. What was so certain and solid yesterday is meaningless today. Elijah, classic example. Emotions are vivid creatures indeed. So, these are the two primary problems with doubts caused by unruly emotions. There's nothing sinful in emotions themselves. They're given by God. He made us this way. They have, their, they have their proper place. Would you really like to spend all sorts of time with someone who never laughed? Well, we know we wouldn't. Emotions bring a, a bright quality to life. We're not robots. But emotions have the potential to become our greatest enemies of faith For these two reasons. First, they are far too easily influenced. And secondly, they are far too influential. Point number three. What can we do about this? Given our present makeup, I always like looking at a subject that I know applies to everybody in the room. Everybody but me. Given our present makeup, this is a battle that every one of us fights 24-7. I'm going to say I think there are three basic steps to tackling doubts that are caused by emotions out of control. First, and I know this isn't enough by itself. There's three thoughts here, and you need all three of them, like legs on a stool. If you just have two of them, the stool won't stand up, okay? So take all these together. First, recognize the central place of the mind in the Christian life. I need to explain that statement so it won't be misunderstood. I don't mean that the mind is the only important part of the Christian life. I I know and I've preached faith is so much more than merely understanding and agreeing with certain doctrinal truths in the head. I get that. There's, There's a cold academic approach to Christian living that's miles apart from the life of the spirit in the soul. But having said all of that, 
the mind still gets a bum rap in a lot of current Christian thought. You've probably come across someone saying something like this. God, how we need our lives revived. Take all the truth we have in our heads and move it all a foot lower into our hearts. I kind of know what's being said there. I mean, if the person means that truth in the head is useless until it's applied to the life, then I'm with you. I agree 100%. But there's something else that still needs to be said. The plain fact is, if you want to talk about the heart, you need to understand that the vast majority of times the word heart is used in this book we all carry to church. The vast majority of times that the word heart is used, biblically, it's referring to the mind. That's what it's talking about. Not every time, I didn't say that. But by far, the vast majority of times, it's referring to the mind. In only a very small percentage of cases does it refer to the emotions. And, and the reason for that, I think, is basic And it's obvious. The mind, while it's not the only part of the Christian life, is meant to be the controlling part. It is what governs and steers and regulates all of the God-given emotions and responses that lie within us. I mentioned C.S. Lewis before in his typically fresh fashion. Here's his definition of faith in mere Christianity. And if you haven't read mere Christianity, get run, don't walk, run to the resource room at the close of the service and get your copy of mere Christianity. He says this. Supposing a person's reason once decides that the weight of evidence is for faith. I can tell that person what is going to happen to him in the next few weeks and months. There will come a moment when there is very bad news, or he is in some trouble, or is living among a lot of other people who don't believe as he believes. And all at once, his emotions will rise up and carry out a sort of blitz on his belief. Now, faith, in the sense of which I understand the word... Faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. There it is. That's, that's, take it to the bank. That's it exactly. The, the mind is the regulator of the will. Things you don't feel like doing. Things that are hard to do, but you know you should. Things that you know you shouldn't do, but feel like doing. Who calls the shots in that situation? What you know or your inclinations? You cannot be a person of faith if your inclinations are driving at that moment. You can't follow Jesus. That's why most of the time the mind is called the heart in scriptures. It's fittingly called the central place, the central role we, we often talk about it. We'll say, here's the heart of the matter, right? And it's important for us to consider all this right at the start of the process of discipleship. If the emotions, the inclinations, 
if the emotions were given the key place in coming to Christ, in other words, if they were in the driver's seat at the beginning, you're lonely, you need to come to Jesus. You're depressed, you need to come to Jesus. You're afraid, you need to come to Jesus. It happens in altar calls all across the country. And if you put the emotions in the driver's seat at the point of conversion, they will continue driving the life after conversion. We need to make sure we understand this. That's the first thing I'm suggesting. Know the governing place of the mind in spite of how you feel. B, know your emotional triggers. It's very important that you know your emotional triggers because the devil knows them. This is the kind of strategy I think of when I hear the word spiritual warfare. The lusts of the flesh, those unruly emotional currents and responses, right under the surface, right under the surface where your fallen nature still resides, those are the primary tools of the enemy of your soul. This is how he robs and kills and steals and destroys. This is how he does it. Check your patterns of failure. See what makes you blow up in anger. See what incites incites lust. See what generates materialistic impulses. See what causes you to hate other people. Now we come to this text as I kind of wrap up. Psalm 19, 12 and 13. Who can discern his errors? He's not saying it's impossible because he's going to talk about about hidden faults and checking them out. The Holy Spirit will help. Who can discern his errors? This is the psalmist saying, there's, you know, there's, there's the things I do, and if I just look at the things I do without looking at what's fueling those actions. If, if you don't look at what's under the surface of your life, You're never going to analyze yourself properly. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from from presumptuous sins. There's a certain kind of sin. And here's the thing. When you start living life on the level of your desires and impulses... ...sins always become presumptuous and they always become habitual. That's this idea of dominion. Because your desires will always justify sinful activities if you want them to. Always. If your emotions govern you instead of your thought and the word of God, then, then there is nothing you will do that ultimately you can't justify doing. And there's nothing you will leave undone that will feel important. Let them not have dominion over me, then I shall be blameless. He doesn't mean sinless. Blameless of this great transgression. Because if you start living life on the level of these inward desires and emotions, the things under the surface of your life, sin becomes habitual. Because they're self-feeding. The more you give in to your desires, the stronger your desires come. This is always the lie of the enemy. That all you need to do, just click on that pornographic website and you will satisfy sexual desire. But you don't. You create it. 
That's the nature of those kinds of desires. They lead to this. Great transgression. Who can discern his errors? Let me just blow the dust off that phrase for a minute because you've asked the same question. I guarantee you've asked the same question in different words. You've said something like this in the last month. Why in the world did I say that? Anybody ever done that? You're lying to me. Anybody ever done that? Yeah, okay, I feel better now. Why in the world did I say that? How could I have been so stubborn? Right? Have you ever done this? What? My dad used to say this to me all the time. What were you thinking? And of course, the problem was, I wasn't. What happened was, in some area, there was some kind of desire that was canceling out what I should have been thinking. Right? That's, that's what David's saying. Who can discern his errors? How could I not have seen this coming? This problem runs deep. And this this inward prayer and discernment is necessary if presumptuous sins are to be avoided. If we're going to be innocent of great transgression. The psalmist doesn't want inner inner emotions, inner inclinations to, to create sins with momentum. Third thing I think we can do. Talk to yourself more than you listen to yourself. Let me ask a question. I'm not going to embarrass anybody. I just, I'm curious. How many people in one, and there's nothing wrong with this, okay? This is not a bad thing I'm asking you. How many people in some form or another keep, um, keep like a, a, now I can't think of the word. A journal, what was the other word you used for that? A diary, a journal. That t- How many keep something like that? Let me just see. I'm curious. Okay, so a fair number. Let me just make a suggestion. It's very easy when you're doing these things, I've done it myself, to, to write down things um, that are going on in your life instead of writing down things that you need to do to counteract what's going on in your life. In other words, you're, when you journal, don't just be listening to yourself. What you journal, make sure you're speaking to yourself. So that what you have in your diary or your journal isn't just a list of your emotions at that moment, but what you're writing down on paper is, this is how I need to respond to what I'm feeling right now. There's a world of difference in that approach. Talk to yourself more than you listen to yourself. This is not a one-time action, but a lifelong habit. Your emotions are not going to go away, nor should they. But they must never be given the pulpit in your heart. They must be constantly instructed. They must constantly be reined in. If they do most of the talking... 
Your faith will not stand. It's like my friend Ken in that opening illustration. You'll never get on that airplane as long as your fears do all the talking. Never. Years ago, I remember reading, because it surprised me, great devotional writer Oswald Chambers. He wrote these words. There are certain things we must never pray about. This from the man who wrote my utmost for his highest. Okay? There are certain things we must never pray about. Moods, for instance. Moods never go away by praying. Moods only go out by kicking. Many of our problems in the Christian life come not initially because of some committed sin, but because we were ignorant of our own nature. So a good portion of developing a strong faith is keeping the emotional, responsive side of our nature under the governance of an informed biblical mind that listens to the Holy Spirit as he speaks through his word and the fellowship of Christians in the body of Christ. It's like having kids in the car. You ever go on a long trip? Remember when our girls were little? It's great to have them in the back seat. But you don't want them up driving. And that's how you, that's how you work with the feelings and the emotions in your, in your Christian life. There are good emotions. There are right emotions. The joy of the Lord. The, the, the joy that comes from worshiping together. But just know that these are the triggers. Rarely is your reason... Rarely is your reason the point of attack of Satan in your life. Almost always, some inward response to something. There. That's how he works.